Last New Wave, the podcast where we discuss the wide and varied landscape that is Australian cinema. My name is Andrew, and I'm joined by my wife, Bernadette. Hello. To talk briefly about the history of Ray Lawrence's 2002 film, Lantana. Later on, I will discuss the film and its themes at length with Dwight Hurst from the Broken Brain and the Amygdala Magazine podcast. Uh, Dwight is a regular podcaster, and he's based in the United States, and uh, believe it or not, Lantana was his, this particular viewing of Lantana was his first viewing, and he'd actually never heard of this particular film before at all, uh, prior to me sending him a message and saying, hey, Dwight, do you want to discuss Lantana on a podcast? (laughs) So stick around and you can listen to the discussion with him later on in the show. Bernadette. What was your experience with Lantana when it came out in around 2001, 2002? Uh, my experience with Lantana um, was maybe not the best experience, just in terms of um, I think I had just seen Bliss uh-huh. um, because it was something that we, we studied at university. And that film is just so in my opinion, so amazing. And I kind of almost like am annoyed that you're not covering that. that. Um, And I guess, you know, obviously there was a, which I'm sure you'll discuss a very long period between the making of Bliss. No, we don't actually discuss it. So we can discuss it right now. Well, there was... We will do in a minute. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> um, and Lawrence's Lantana, which is a very... I mean, I'm not saying it's not a good film. I think it is very good film. I think it's, you know, superbly acted. Um... And it it has all of those sort of hooky elements to it that that I I love in a film about multiple characters, sort of a mm. drama about because it has a mystery element to it. Um, it has that sort of interconnecting uh, storylines where you're you're given pieces, bits and pieces, and you're kind of part of you is asked to to put those together, but you're also sort of um, uh, tantalizingly waiting for a little bit more, a bit more of a crumb mm. to sort of figure out well how is this web. Um, going to come together but I think because I'd seen Bliss so so recently um, and was kind of you know as you are when you're sort of in your your youth (laughs) and you're you're awakened to Australian cinema like wow all this stuff exists and I never sort it out Um, Lantana kind of felt not like a step down but just like a not not as revolutionary I guess as Bliss was when I was watching it Um, but yes it's definitely a, a, a a very good film. Mm. I think it's it's a very accessible film um, without losing, and this is the genius of it as well, which is some, sometimes, unfortunately, perhaps not the case with other Australian um, films. Is that it has this accessibility, a world a sort of a world accessibility with its themes, but it doesn't lose the Australianness of the yes. film. Yeah, um, it's still very potent to. Australian culture and and particularly that time in Australian culture that it represents mm. but there is kind of these overarching themes and also as i said that mystery that the the very popular sort of yeah interconnecting character drama that makes it very very accessible to to any audience yeah. um, even those perhaps that don't necessarily seek out films from that aren't from their own country yeah, and and it has an international cast as well. You know, you've got Barbara Hershey, um, who Jeffrey I think is Rush yeah, Jeffrey well. Rush, who is you know um, is well known um, in the UK and in the United States. But I think Barbara Hershey is actually one of those really lovely actresses on screen, and it kind of saddens me that she hasn't worked as much. Um, yeah, 
And she's she's quite good here. Sad cases of you know women get old, poor post beaches era, Mm. and other such films. Women get you know age, and there's just so few. You know Meryl Streep just gobbles them all up, and a few (laughs) other you know actresses of a certain age gobble up these parts. And you know because there aren't as many, we lose really good actresses. Yeah, which is you know maybe she's retired. I'm not 100 percent sure. She might still be acting, and I just haven't seen her film. That's a possibility. (laughs) I'll have to IMDb it after. Yeah. That that was kind of my. It certainly is a film that that I respect and that I really enjoyed, um, but because I saw it so close to my first experience with Ray Lawrence's first film, um, it kind of maybe didn't blow me away mm. um, as much as it has you. You've you've mentioned in the introduction that it is your favourite Australian film of all time, which is a very <laughs> big statement to make. It I is. don't think I could name of the Australian film that I loved of all time. I'm not an all time person. I'm a good time. <laughs> it depends, you know, what mood I'm in. But anyway. Continue. That's understandable. Well, I mean, you mentioned Praise and Love Serenade. and Yeah, but they're not my favourite of all time. No. I have to really sit and meditate. I have to meditate probably for like Well, I'll tell you what. We've got... <laughs> I've got these these films already lined up for the next uh, 10 months or so. Yes. So you've got about 10 months oh, to, to mediate right. and sit down and, and think on what your favourite <laughs> one is. And we'll have to discuss it in the future. Um but for me, coming to Lantana was a bit like, you know, I my favourite film of all time is Magnolia. Is, you know, Dwight oh, and no I discussed you. it. Lantana is your favourite film of all time. <laughs> well, you know, Dwight and I discussed it a bit later on. But, you know, there is kind of this interconnected nature with the two films, Magnolia and Lantana, in the sense that they are... Both about sort of gardening. <laughs> <laughs> no, they're not. Well, I mean, but... At, at the age that I was when Lantana came out, part of me was a little bit cynical and thinking, oh, this is just Australia's attempt to do Magnolia. Oh, you see, they've called it a, after a, a plant and, <laughs> you know, and you've got this huge cast and it's all about, you know, yeah. interconnecting things and stuff like that. But then I saw the film and... And I fell in love, and and I was blown away. And I've it's very I've, different thematically. Like oh, it is. Yes, yeah. Similarities. Yeah. Uh, there is no maybe, there is no cast singing a song and and no. stuff like that in There's Lantana. No There's no frogs <laughs> unless they're in the gardens of the. <laughs> yeah, there is a bunch of bugs in the background, and that oh, goes yeah. back to what you're saying about you know it not losing its Australian aspect. Mm. That I think the sound design here is really stunning. Because, yeah, and, and that certainly helps. I think the score and the yeah. Soundtrack. Because it certainly, it, it does give the feeling of Australia in the summertime when there's, you know, bugs and things essentially just existing out of your peripheral vision, but you can hear them. And and that certainly feels like Australia to me. And, mm. and it's a hard thing to be able to, to get on screen. And maybe for me, in a way, I, you know... Not saying that I related to this film when I first saw it, but I understood it a lot more and appreciated it probably a little bit more than the Australian films I had seen during that period. And you would have been only, then. what, 18 or 19? 18, when 19, it came out? Yeah, yeah. So I met you when you were 19, yeah. or just almost 20. So I, the Andrew that, that I <laughs> that I envision, I would imagine eating this film up, like <laughs> gobbling it up, like mm, nom, 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 nom. this is <laughs> this is exactly the type of you know sort of film that uh, you know as you say at that point in your life as well, you're kind of on the cusp of of you know changes and adulthood and mm. 
um, you're you're also wanting to be taken seriously as a as a person, and, yeah. and I think sometimes your film choices and the things oh, that you love sure, sort of reflect yeah. <laughs> that as well. It's like you know, I've loved Magnolia. Yeah. Um, this film, Lantana, ooh. And as you say, you know, maybe going in with that reservation of, oh, this is, you know, it's, it's just, just us an trying Australian to, knockoff. Yeah, it's not yeah. going to be, it's not going to touch me as much or it's not going to be, you know, as mm. as um, invoking of emotion and creative as, as poor Thomas Anderson or yeah. whatever, whatever American icons we <laughs> hold up, you know, just because they're from there for some reason. Um, so, yeah, I, I can totally see this um, being a film that, hmm. that you would have loved at that time. Knowing and you. the thing is, I hadn't seen Bliss prior to seeing okay. this as well. So you I, have seen it since I have seen it. I saw it afterwards. There, was, there is a great two-disc DVD. I think yes. it's unfortunately out of print now, but it is a really good good disc to watch. Um, so, yeah, that's that's my experience with the film. And, you know, I was going to talk about the awards. We'll get onto them in a moment. But... I'll talk about the the box office for this film briefly. Um, because what is interesting about this film is it did stunning numbers at the Australian box office and it did pretty well internationally as well. I don't think... I don't know what the budget of Lantana was, unfortunately, so I can't compare... You know, I... If you know, maybe hit us up. Yeah. <laughs> if you, yeah, if you know, if you let us know. you're the person in charge of the budget on yeah, Lantana, Jan Chapman, like can you let me know, please? Hear from you. <laughs> um, but in Australia, according to the um, Box Office Mojo website, um, which I don't know if it records, I- I'm pretty sure this is in US dollars if it's Box Office Mojo, but um, essentially it did $6.1 million domestically in Australia, which... You know, when you consider the fact that most Australian films really struggle to make their money back, their budget back, let alone get an audience for an extended period of time. And I remember that at that period of time, you know, this is obviously about five years after Titanic was around and Titanic was in cinemas for months on end, something that doesn't happen in cinemas nowadays. And I do remember that Lantana was around for a very Mm. long time because I saw it, I think it was three times in the cinemas. And, you know, it is a film that, you know, it resonated with people, as you can tell with the 6.1 million. Um, (laughs) American listeners are like, what? 6.1 million? (laughs) That's like the crafts, it's a cape budget on Batman vs. Superman. (laughs) Exactly, yeah. Um, So internationally, all all together combined, it did $15.7 million dollars. Which is pretty good, um, because outside of Australia, um, in America, it did domestically four point six million, which is a pretty stunning figure. Given that I think it was released a couple of months just after um, September eleven, and not saying that you know September eleven really has a, a factor on the themes of this film, but you know the the plot of this film deals with some heavy stuff, marriage, love, death, that kind of thing. And it's, so it's not really the the escape film that some audience was, would look for, I guess is the, the way of putting it. After tragedy, often people turn to light affair. And while this isn't, you know, Lars von Trier dark, it's not the lightest film around. Um, so to hear that it did that well at the American box office as well is, is quite quite good um 
although it's a little bit sad in a way, and hopefully through this podcast it it does respark some kind of interest, you know, as small as it may be within the film. But it's sad that it's it has kind of dropped away in discussion of great Australian films because. You know, one of the the people in the uh, on Twitter mentioned today about this particular film, and they compared it to In the Bedroom, mm. which is a film that I, I honestly, until they mentioned it, I I wouldn't have brought up the comparison myself, but only because I I have essentially I've forgotten that film, but that is a a, a film which was nominated for Best Picture at the mm. the Academy Awards, and you know is is in some regard still in public consciousness so you know i think that with australian cinema in a way this kind of film gets lost in public consciousness and even though it's a success domestically and and you know yeah okay 4.6 million isn't really a huge amount um you know in in regards to american box office but for an australian film it's pretty darn good so yeah i would like it to have lived on in public consciousness a little bit more oh, i think it has in australia in terms of australian film oh yeah in australia Chicago, it has yeah <laughs> <laughs> well even even not aficionados you know i think it is certainly a a well-loved film some people may have the soundtrack uh, the soundtrack, without having even seen the film, <laughs> exactly because it is you know the score is by Paul Kelly and we'll touch on that in a in a little bit. Um, the other thing as well that I find quite interesting is that you know people talk about films like One Flew of the Cuckoo's Nest or It uh, It Happened One Night and uh, Silence of the Lambs as being films that kind of have won the Holy Five, I guess is the way of putting it at the Academy Awards, which is the the best screenplay, the best actor, best actress, best director, and best picture. And that's a pretty, you know, that's hitting all marks. Yeah. And those films are really great films. Yes. Lantana is one of the few Australian films to have been able to accomplish the same feat in for our film awards. Mm. At the time, it was called the AFIs. Uh, now it's been changed to, the name has been changed to the Actors, A-A-C-T-A. Um, but yeah, at the time it was called the AFIs and I think they changed their name mostly to stop confusion with the American film industry uh, awards, I think it is. Um, but yeah, so here I'll read off the nominations of what it didn't win. Uh, and then I'll read what it did win. So it was nominated for best costume design. Margot Wilson was nominated there. Um, best production design by Kim Buddy, uh, best sound by Sid Sid Butterworth, Andrew Plain, and Robert Sullivan. As I mentioned, you know, the that sound design of the, the crickets and the cicadas in the background is really adds a lot of atmosphere to the film and is really impressive. Uh, you know, I, I like... That's one of the things I really love about the film. Um, oddly, in my opinion, it lost best score. Uh, Paul Kelly did the score, who, you know, is a well-known Australian songwriter, and he lost uh, to Edmund Choi for The Dish, uh, which I, th- I found kind of strange in a way, because not because I don't recall the, the score for The Dish. I do remember actually having the soundtrack to The Dish. It's long lost somewhere, um, and I do remember appreciating it, but it didn't resonate with me the same way that Lantana's score does, because that does really play into the film in a way for me. Uh, best editing 
by Carl Soderston. Um, Best Supporting Actress, Daniela Farinacci, who plays uh, Vince Colosimo's partner in the film. Um, So they're all the people that were nominated. Um, And these are the people that won. So it won Best Adapted Screenplay by Andrew Bovell, who had essentially adapted the screenplay from his stage play, Speaking in Tongues, which is a really fascinating stage play and a really interesting one as well that deals with marriage and relationships. And it's on a a little bit more reduced scale than Lantana is, Um, but it is certainly... There are excerpts of the play on YouTube and I highly recommend seeking them out or even just reading the play itself because Andrew Bovell is probably one of Australia's best screen uh, stage writers. Uh, he's a good screenwriter as well, um, but he's a great stage writer. It's certainly upset up there with uh, David Williamson, for example. Um, Rachel Blake won Best Supporting Actress, and she plays the the neighbour to Vince Colosimo's character and the one who essentially dobs in on him uh, when he comes home late one night and she sees him throwing a shoe into the lantana bush uh, and vince colosimo himself won the best supporting actor award uh kerry armstrong from sea change and a bunch of other things as well um won best actress um anthony Lepalia won best actor deservingly so i think this is possibly his best work uh, he is really really great in this particular role um for our american listeners you may remember him from empire records well, I wasn't going to and, say without. I was going to say without, without a trace. trace. But. I was trying to think of the two two roles that would probably be the most sure mainstream, I guess. Yeah, as the owner of Empire Records and the detective in Without a Trace. I forgot that he was in Empire Records. How could oh, police? <laughs> um, so Ray Lawrence won Best Director, and Jan Chapman won as producer for Best Picture, and. The films that it was up against, uh, for Best Picture at least, um, there we are. The films that it was up against are pretty noted films. They are really great Australian it, films. Let's be honest. There are, and it's no, it's no, it's no um, how to put it? Slight? Slight on the industry or the people that are creating in it. There are some years where there, it's not as much of a competition because perhaps yeah. there just hasn't necessarily been as many, you know, quality releases or funding that we needed. Um, or the or the, the industry itself just hasn't nominated the right films. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, you're right. This wasn't actually really a particularly strong year, I think. Yeah, and a very interesting one as well because you had films... So, unlike the Academy Awards, we nominate four films for Best Picture... Um, is that with the actors as well, or has it changed? I think five? with the actors, it's broadened a little bit because you have a year, uh, and this is reaching a little bit forward a touch, but you have a year like in 2014. Um, uh, just having a look, it looks like um, it varies, so five to six films mm. depending on. But for a year like 2014, where Tracks, The Railway Man, Predestination, Charlie's Country, The Water Diviner, and The Babadook were nominated for Best Picture... Uh, that was actually the the year that there was a draw, uh, and the Babadook and the Water Diviner both won, both won Best Picture that year. Mm. Some would certainly say that the Water Diviner wasn't deserving, me being one of those people. But 
This is not the episode to discuss those films. No. <laughs> <laughs> so the films that Lantana was nominated up against uh, for Best Picture that year were Moulin Rouge, which was oh, also nominated a... for Best Picture yeah. at the Academy Awards, yeah. uh, but is also a film that... I do like that. I like that Australia's like, eh, we don't care that it got nominated for <laughs> the, musical. the Oscar. I don't know. <laughs> Who cares? Let's give it to us. <laughs> yeah, but that is a that's certainly a film that, you know, I think many people think would be unaware love, that... But I think... No, but I think they'll be unaware that it's an Australian film. I think, I, I think Baz Luhrmann's a pretty well-known Australian director. I think I think most surely would know that it's Australian. I don't know. Maybe I'm maybe I'm being naive. Yeah, maybe, but I I don't know. Uh, it was also nominated against the Dish, which is the follow-up film to the Castle. Uh, it was a film that I was going to discuss on the on a future episode, but instead we'll be discussing the Castle in a few months' time by popular demand. By popular we, we demand, did ask yes. People to, <laughs> and uh, Andrew's reaction to people's suggestions was, "Ah, oh, no, I don't want to do the castle. I'm going to do the dish." I said, "No, people have asked for the castle. <laughs> you don't ask people for their suggestions if you aren't going to take them." Yes. <laughs> um, it was also nominated against the bank, which is a really mm. good film as well, and I highly recommend seeking that out. So, you know the. The year that it was nominated and won solid work all round and Lantana to come out on top, it's not surprising because it is a stunning film, but it is great to see that, you know, in the realm of best picture winners in the, the history of Australian cinema, it's it has its place cemented there, really, which is quite good to see. Um, so we'll touch on Ray Lawrence's work in general, and he for a period of time was as prolific as Terence Malick. Um, you know, just like Terence Malick, there was... But he, a, unfortunately, he's not Terence Malick now. He's churning one out. I don't know. <laughs> it depends on how you perceive Terence Malick's current films. But, um, yeah, unfortunately, Ray Lawrence hasn't... You know, he's only done three films. And Bliss was made... In the 80s, and then 16 years later, Jindabyne came out. Uh, not Jindabyne, sorry. Lantana came out. And then about five years later, Jindabyne came out. And that's all he's done. Um, and out of them, I haven't seen Jindabyne. It's a, a blight on my my Australian cinema viewing. I've tried viewing. to get you to watch it so many times. I will times. watch it. I will watch it. Um, but Bliss is a fantastic film, as we've mentioned, and Lantana is a great film as well. And I think Jindabyne did pretty well at the box office in domestically. It, did. it was more um, critically uh, mixed yes. know, reactions than, yeah. than Lantana, that's for sure. So one of the things that I am interested in touching on with these particular films is touching on notable reviews, I guess, for the films in a way. And... Uh, for the most part, I'm fortunate that the two reviewers that I'm interested in getting the opinions off uh, were pretty active for the most of the series in reviewing these particular films. And they are Roger Ebert, so the American opinion, and David Stratton, who's the Australian side of uh, reviewing Australian cinema. And he's also a massive champion of Australian cinema as well. Um, so... Bernadette, do you want to just read? I've, there's an excerpt yeah, from Roger sure. Ebert's review. And hopefully, you know, this may give a 
a few things, minor things about the film away, but we are hoping that you may have actually watched the film Mm. um, prior to listening to this, or that perhaps some of these descriptors will help to convince you to seek it out if you you haven't. So Roger Ebert gave it a very favourable review. Um, He reviews films out of four stars, and he gave it a three and a half out of four, Mm. which is quite high praise um, from Mr Ebert. And uh, his review opens up, by saying, uh, Lantana opens with a camera tracking through dense Australian shrubbery to discover the limbs of a dead woman. We are reminded of the opening of Blue Velvet, which pushed into lawn grass to suggest dark hid- dark places hidden just out of view. Much of the movie will concern the identity of the dead woman and how she died, but when the mystery is solved, it turns out to be less an answer than a catalyst, the event that caused several lives to interlock. Ray Lawrence's film is like Robert Altman's Shortcuts or Paul Thomas Anderson's Magnolia in the way it shows the lives of strangers joined by unsuspecting connections. It discovers a web of emotional hope and betrayal. At its centre is a cop named Leon Zat, played by Anthony LaPaglia, in the process of meltdown. He is cheating on his wife. He has chest pains. He beats a suspect beyond any need or reason. He is ferocious with his son. He collides with a man while jogging and explodes in anger. So I think that's a really good... Uh, it's a good descriptor for the Anthony LaPaglia uh, character. And he, even though it is a very ensemble cast, he is kind of the centre um, yes, of, yeah. of the film and of the mystery as well because he is a cop exactly. um, in the film. Yeah. And, you know, and Dwight and I discuss him at a bit more length later on and, as mentioned, I think that is a great performance from Anthony LaPaglia. And even if you're not a fan of the film itself, then I, I do believe that it's worth watching or re-watching just to focus on his performance in particular. Uh, so David Stratton's review, he doesn't write, uh, usually give uh, ratings in his written reviews. Um, they were mostly focused on uh, for at the movies or the movie show when that, that was on the air. Um, but I do know that when uh, at the movies finished that... Um, both he and Margaret put it in their their favourite films of all time list, uh, or at least their their favourite films that were released in the period that yes. the movie show and at the movies was on. So, and they only mentioned five films as well. Uh, so his review says it's a film in which seemingly un- unimportant details assume great importance, and an unusual level of realism is achieved both in writing and performance. A scene in which Leon, while jogging near his home, violently collides with another another jogger is of no direct importance to the plot, though the stranger proves later to have a connection with another character in the story. But it helps to underline Leon's instability. Similarly, when Valerie unjustly accuses a stranger, who happens to be Pete, uh, another character in the story, of talking to her in the street and vents her anger on the startled man, it's something of a shock. Connections like these between characters who are unaware they're linked in other ways add to the film's multi-layered pleasures. LaPaglia gives one of his finest performances a desperately unhappy cop, while Armstrong is agonizingly good as his betrayed wife. Equally fine is Blake as the woman who's whom as the woman with whom Leon seeks temporary release, an act which triggers unexpected results. Hershey offers a subtle, truthful performance as the obsessed Valerie, while Russia's John is barely able to suppress the pain and grieving he feels over his daughter's death, but bottles it all up inside. 
Phelps is particularly impressive as the tormenting Patrick. Vince Colosimo and Farinacci score as the happily married couple, and Leah Purcell subtly conveys the watchful repression of her sidekick character. Also notable are Nicholas Cooper and Mark Dwyer, who play the young sons of Leon and Sonia, very aware youngsters who handle the tension at home in totally different ways. Mandy Walker's precisely framed widescreen photography gives this intimate story of emotionally bruised and battered people an expansive feel, and music is sparingly but aptly utilised. Producer Jan Chapman's quality control pervades the film, which is strong in every technical department. So yeah, that's that's a, the two sort of notable reviews from uh, notable reviewers in the world, I guess, David Stratton and Roger Ebert. And throughout this series, I'll try and touch base with the, what their reviews have to say about the film. And, and if they're not available, then at least try and get an idea of what the American perspective was and the Australian perspective was. And, mm. and uh, you know... Well, it doesn't have to be American. It could be European or... It could be European, but or... I think uh, when I was searching, it was very hard to find European reviews uh, mm. that, that weren't at the time that the film was released. Oh, I see. Yes. Um, you know, because, of course, Rotten Tomatoes and stuff like that do kind of aggregate reviews all over the shop. So... We'll go. We'll touch base with Paul Kelly's score for a moment, and he's not really a a notable, you know, score writer, you know, film score writer in a way. Uh, I guess in comparison to Nick Cave, who has scored mm. multiple films and does a great job of it as well. Um, Paul Kelly has only really scored this, scored this, and also a. It's a. They call it an Australian opera in a way, or an Australian. It's a musical, but they, the the technical term was Australian opera, which was, um, I think it's called One the Night or Once the Night, which is a short fifty minute film uh, where he actually stars and he did he did the music uh, for that. And it's well worth seeking out as well. Um, but his score, I think, is a, a fascinating score. As I've mentioned multiple times, I think that it, it is it is the sound of summer for me. It's the sound of the cicadas in the night, the vast forests that encompass the environment within the film. It is about Australia and his score, you know that particular when it's a really hot day and the steam from the tarmac rises up. That to me is what his score is like and it's a really impressive score. Um, so yeah, I'm slightly disappointed having read that he didn't win the AFI award that year. Um a few other interesting notes about the film as well is that, you know, Ray Lawrence, he wasn't a fan of using artificial light. He didn't want to use lighting to bright up the characters' faces or the actors' faces. So he tried to use natural light as much as possible. And this is why in the film you'll see that characters stand by windows quite a bit and you know, stare out at the the surroundings quite a bit or sit near windows talking. And it's not just because they like windows. It's just simply because natural light does, you know, fill them with a, a certain natural glow. As anybody who knows about color temperatures and stuff like that, of course, artificial light does give an artificial feel to it. And I do think that the the use of natural light here is really wonderful because it does light up the the aspects of the film and give it a certain Australian 
feel and you know not to not to really go too worldly or anything like that but many people will talk about the Australian sun and how it kind of beats down on people and you know the Australian sun is certainly it does feel very different compared to the American sun or the European sun in a way um and you know I think that in that regard Ray Lawrence has managed to capture that in a way here in this particular film Maybe I'm going on a bit too long about that particular <laughs> no, I like aspect. Your, I but... like your ruminations about the sun. <laughs> I haven't. I can't. I've only felt the American sun. I can't personally discuss the European sun. I've not been to Europe, so. <laughs> but you have, so I'll, yes. I'll let you have that. But this is not a sun podcast. So <laughs> now that would be an interesting podcast. Yeah. So Bernadette, as you won't be part of the the review section of this film because that's already recorded with Dwight (laughs) Um, do you have a recommendation as to another Australian film that is similar to Lantana in either you know tone or theme or anything like that or even you know cast or anything like that that you would recommend Um, I I don't have a film that that I would necessarily recommend um, as sort of a similar companion piece I would I would uh Recommend and, and highly urge people to just seek out Lawrence's other two films. Um, we're talking about, you know, a three-film career here, but there is a lot of quality and a lot of meat mm. to not only Lantana but his other two films, Bliss and Jindabyne. Um, so that that would be my recommendation because then you've got, you know, it's, it's rare, I think, to have a, a filmmaker who... In, in our country anyway is very prolific with mm. with in terms of quality and the the subjects the subject matter that he touches on in all three of his films which are, are quite um, not only dramatic but important mm. um, society and culturally significant uh, so that would be my a bliss if you're a fan of films that people walk out of at the Cannes Film Festival, <laughs> then <laughs> definitely seek out Bliss. It, it premiered at the 1985 Cannes Film Festival. Um, it was uh, uh, adapted by Lawrence and Peter Kerry, who was the author of the original novel Bliss, an mm. Australian novel. And uh, as a side note as well, great Peter novel. Kerry is a great novelist, yes. Australian writer. So there and, you go, you've got another. <laughs> yeah. I highly recommend reading some of his books. Um, yeah. So apparently there was a, 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 this is according to the internet, so I apologise in advance if it's not <laughs> if it's not law, but um, apparently there was about a 400 strong, um, or there was a, maybe not 400, maybe it's 4,000. I, I, I can't read my own writing, but... 400 of the 2,000 strong. Words. Oh, okay. Well, that's not too bad. <laughs> that's not too, but still, that's, that's, 400 people is a pretty significant yeah. walkout of a... Um, but, you know, a lot of the, the very best films weren't appreciated at at um, film festivals or at their premiere. Um, and I guess one of the reasons why perhaps I, I mentioned uh, earlier why my um, uh, watching of Bliss so close to watching Lantana maybe impacted my enjoyment mm. and appreciation a little bit of Lantana is that Bliss, it was so um, seminal and ahead of its time. I just want to quote um, from uh, the uh, a Sid- former Sydney Morning Herald critic and uh, director of the Sydney Film Festival, um, Paul, is it? Paul Burns. Yeah, good on. Well done. Again, <laughs> Bernadette needs to write more legibly. 
Um, but I think he sums it up better for me, uh, better than I ever could. Uh, so in his notes, he's written, uh, a key film in the story of Australian movies. It represents a kind of liberation point, a leap away from naturalism and the historical realism of the new wave of the 1970s towards the modernism of the 1990s. To say it was ahead of its time is an understatement. The boldness of boldness of its metaphors and the sharpness of its satire were too much for many people in 1985, um, in particular at that uh, Cannes Film Festival mm. premiere. Um, and then the other film, his his last film, which was in 2006, um, uh, Jindabyn, which has sort of a, a, again, a bit like Lantana, a sort of varied cast in terms of, um, sort of international talent. Yeah. We have uh, Gabrielle Byrne and Laura Linney as the leads along with um, some fine Australian actors such as uh, Deborah Lee Finesse, who may be unfortunately more well-known to international audiences as Hugh Jackman's wife, <laughs> um, <laughs> and John Howard, not the, the Prime Minister of Australia, but the actor who, yeah. may, who may be known to most people at the moment in the States as the Wombat Man from Mad Max Fury Road. Yes. Ginger <laughs> <laughs> um, Pine is one of those films that I was really... I didn't see it when it first came out. I think I saw it about a year later, and... I was shocked that it had such a mixed mm. um, critical reception. Um, and I think it's quite low. I think it's on like, the 60s in Rotten yeah. Tomatoes and about 60. I remember 60, it getting a three stars and off can, and around the place. I can kind of understand. And, and what is really interesting, I guess, is that we note that Lantana has a lot of um, uh, narrative similarities to shortcuts. Well, Jindabyne is based on um, – it was adapted – the screenplay was written by Beatrix Christian and it was adapted – from the Raymond Carver short story, So Much Water, So Close to Home, which was the basis of one of the storylines in Robert Altman's Shortcuts. Hmm. So there's actually a connection, yeah. a, a specific connection between Shortcuts and Jindabyne. Yeah. Um, it's, it's certainly not a perfect film, and I can understand you know, why perhaps, you know, it, in comparison to Bliss and to, to Lantana, it's not considered, you know, in the, the top, top two of his three <laughs> films. But it's just, it's such a... Uh, the the top the topic of sort of the morality racism in Australia and the sort of again relationships mm. and men, you know mental illness is so pervasive and in your face for me anyway mm-hmm. and it touches on that sort of the idea of sort of subtle privilege. And, and racism that people don't even understand what they're doing mm. is completely inappropriate, and, uh, and 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 particularly sort of white male privilege in in my opinion, and Laura Linney's sort of realization of of what her husband and his fellow fishermen have done mm. uh, in this film is just so devastating, and I, I guess maybe you know I'm putting myself in her position while I'm watching it. And for me, it's just, it's really heartbreaking. Mm. And it's heartbreaking to watch these people not necessarily understand, not, not, not being able to even see the ramifications of their actions. Mm. Um, and so I, I find that really fascinating. So regardless of sort of the film's flaws or, or, or um, you know, 
considered by others lack of quality compared to the other two it's it's definitely a film that that i would recommend and it is available on streaming services in australia yeah um i think it's on stan stan and and, uh, iview and um i'm pretty sure it's on um, amazon prime as well if you're in if you're in the states or anywhere that has amazon prime so do do check that out i'll put the Mm. the title in the um the the show notes here as well uh, so thank you for that recommendation. And it's certainly, as you mentioned, it's a film that I, I really should get along to seeing um, because you know, I'm a huge fan of both Laura Linney and Gabriel Byrne. And hopefully it's not another 16 years before we no. get another Ray Although Lawrence film. 10 years now. 10 years. <laughs> so, if, if it is 16, we're over halfway there. Exactly, so. <laughs> exactly. Because he is, you know, and going to what you're saying i did saying, check imdb i was like is there anything coming up that we have unfortunately no that's no, no. no. <laughs> but you know australia doesn't really have that many prolific directors who stick around no, uh and that's certainly true. one of the topics that we'll be discussing on future episodes yeah. as well yeah i just you, you, i'm sorry to bring you back to something from earlier but i just thought it, it would be important for you to make we've talked a lot about ray lawrence in terms of lantana and his other films but the screenplay, mm. I think it's important for for you to maybe recognise some of the other screenplays. Yes, that, of course, yeah. Because just you because are right, yeah. He is very prolific and um, yeah. there may be, for, for some of our listeners who haven't seen Lantana, maybe a, a name on this list um, of a film will be mm. like, oh, I like that film. So maybe I want to check out um, another film scripted by Andrew. Yeah, so Andrew Belville... You know, he as mentioned, he did Lantana and he wrote the the stage play Speaking in Tongues. Uh, he also did uh, he adapted the interesting read, which is uh, Head On, um, another Australian film, um, quite an interesting film. Alex Dimitriades. That, that may be on a future episode. So. Uh, I don't oh, know. No. <laughs> yeah, I'll yeah. see. I'll All right, see. We obviously have a differing of opinion in, on that one, but continue. <laughs> I've. It's been a long time since I've seen it. I'll have to rewatch it before I decide whether oh. it's something. Um, but yeah, it's an interesting film to say the least. Uh, he also co-wrote or did one of the original scripts for Strictly Ballroom, which is a great film and certainly one that I'll be discussing in a future episode. Uh, he also did the Mel Gibson film, I think it's 2008 film, Edge of Darkness, uh, directed by Martin Campbell, I think it is. It's an interesting film. Uh, for sure, that's it's a curious one. Uh, he also did uh, an Australian film called Blessed, which is a really solid film. Uh, it's not a great film, but it's a very, very solid film. Good, good performances in there, and good, interesting story as well. Uh, and also, his most recent script is for A Most Wanted Man, which I think is an adaptation of a John Le Carre book uh, from memory, and it's one of Philip Seymour Hoffman's last performances. Yes. Yeah, so you know, and it was pretty well well regarded. Yeah, that yeah. film, well, and of, of course because of the added tragedy of yeah Philip Seymour Hoffman's passing. But you know, you get a good understanding of what kind of varied work that Andrew Bobble does, and it's a, uh, you know, I think that is reflected quite well in Lantana as well as to what a solid writer he actually is. Uh, so you know, even do check out his other scripts or other films based on his scripts because. Out of all those films, they are actually, you know, they are very solid films. And often you'll find that writers, the script may be really, really good, but the direction or the acting may not live up to what the script 
has on page. Um, but I or think it's that changed yeah, or it's changed in some kind of directorial process. But I think for the most part, uh, they are quite solid. Um, so do do check them out. So, do you have anything else to add about Lantana before we we head on? No, no, no. You're all good. Okay. Um, so we're going to take a brief break while while you listen to part of Paul Kelly's score, which is this particular section is called. Let's tangle. So after you hear that, you'll hear Dwight and I discuss Lantana at length. Thank you very much.
So welcome back, everybody. Thank you for listening to the first half of the inaugural episode of The Last New Wave and listening to the music of Paul Kelly, which is the theme of uh, this this month's film, which is Lantana, my personal favourite Australian film, as you would have heard in me lament about it in the first half. And right now we're bringing in our first, uh, in our, our inaugural uh, international guest to discuss uh, the film, and that is Dwight Hurst from The Broken Brain and a bunch of different podcasts. So welcome, Dwight. Thank you very much. <laughs> hey, thank you for having me, Andrew. I'm super glad to be joining you. <laughs> yes. Yeah, so tell us a little bit about yourself and your podcast and and your existence in the online podcast world. <laughs> <laughs> I, I do exist in the in that world anyway. You you can decide if I exist elsewhere. No, I <laughs> I do a, a show called The Broken Brain, which is your your weekly dose of mental health. It's a show about psychology and psychotherapy. I am a psychotherapist. That's what I do, and I've uh, been into podcasts for a long time. But I almost uh, just actually just about two years ago started The Broken Brain, and uh, we we cover topics that have to do with psychology, therapy, just 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 different aspects of mental health. And people can, uh, you know, join, can can listen to that. You know, it's on iTunes or you can go, uh, yeah, my website, there's like an archive of lots of different topics that we've covered. Uh, and then I dabble a little bit uh, with, with some other shows. I do uh, a show called Amygdala Magazine, which is a review of uh, writing, storytelling, other forms of basically ways to relate creatively. And uh, that's tied with a little short story collection that that we do once a year. We're getting ready to do our our second uh, short story contest. Well, it's actually ongoing now, uh, between now and Halloween. And you yeah. can yeah. So those are some things that I'm. And then I don't know. I get involved in things like coming on here and uh, on uh, some other shows talking about movies and TV and pop culture because it's kind of fun. Yeah, you you are very prolific, and um, <laughs> you know we. I, I thoroughly, whenever I see your name pop up as a guest, I'm because I I love your shows, oh, and whenever I see your name pop up, I'm like, yes, this is going to be an exciting discussion. It's going to be interesting and 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 joyful. So, um, <laughs> well, thank yeah. you. Like going for quantity, <laughs> quantity over quality. I figure it's got to catch up eventually. Something good will shake out. <laughs> oh, there's there's a lot good that is shaken out. Um, so yeah, again, thank you very much for for joining us. Uh, well, I say us. It's you know me on uh, the, this first episode and discussing, as I mentioned, my favourite uh, Australian film, Lantana. And so, essentially, I've I've written a few different questions down as to sort of try and tease a few topics out of you in a way. And the first one is: Had you heard of this film prior to me sending you a message on Facebook saying, "Hey"? Do you want to discuss Lantana on a podcast? <laughs> <laughs> no, uh, I hadn't. And I was like, for, for some reason, when it said Lantana, I thought Katana or something like that. And I thought this was an Australian <laughs> ninja movie, which it turned uh, out it is. Yeah, I, I watched the right one, actually, right? Very much no. so. <laughs> Anthony Lapalia plays a ninja uh, who manages to find a woman in a tree. It's spectacular. He does great waifu work. <laughs> <laughs> But yeah, so you hadn't you hadn't heard of it at all before. Um, I hadn't. No, I, I had not heard of it, and and I was uh, very interested to watch it. I, I'm interested in this whole idea of this podcast because I, I like uh, different films and foreign foreign from my perspective. Although in the, in in your show, I'm the foreigner coming in. 
But uh, yeah. yeah, different international films, and so yeah, I think that it's it's. Uh, I, I thought it was very interesting. How about uh, with the cast as well? I mean, obviously Anthony Lapalia might be well known for was it Without a Trace in America, um, and of course Jeffrey Rush. But were you familiar with any of the other actors or or anybody else besides the? Those two, you know, just a lot of people that looked familiar. But as I've looked up them on IMDb, which I have in front of me right now as well, you know, I don't think I've 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 seen a lot of the things that they're in. A couple of them have done some some American television. I might have seen them on an episode here or there. But sure, a, yeah, and and you know, it was funny to me because Anthony uh, Lapaglia is essentially he's playing as without a trace character, just Australian and more cheaty. <laughs> Yes, in that regard, I guess we'll leap off from there because he is kind of <laughs> the lead character in this film. So, how did you find his character of Leon as as being the central role that ties this bramble together? Yeah, it it was a very interesting take on a mystery because I, I I don't know that I would even qualify this as a mystery. That is what IMDb listed as a drama mystery. I would say. I would say it's more of an interpersonal drama than it is a mystery, but they do they don't uh they don't really lose the mystery element, but they spend uh, a lot of time building up the fact that this is about relationships, it's about life, this is uh I don't know, it's about a lot of things that I'm sure we'll get into, but but overwhelmingly mm. I felt like it was a story really about fear. A lot of people yes. were afraid of a lot of things. And uh, I felt like he was definitely one of them. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> As the central figure in a way, he's, you know, it's interesting because it had been a long while since I'd, I'd actually seen this. And I do love this film, but I remember seeing it multiple times in the cinema and it had probably been about three or four years since I watched it. And my memories of him as a character were you know, challenged in a way of what I'm realizing now because I'm obviously watching it more of a critical eye for this mm-hmm. particular episode. I am more critical of how he moves. And I guess in a way when I'd, rec- when I'd asked if you could join uh, this particular episode, I was a bit like a, a bit more observant of, of his actions, especially in the latter half of the film where he does take some liberties with, um, you know, regarding the – you know, psychologists and the the stealing of, of patients' information and things like that. And part of me was like, oh, I really hope this doesn't turn Dwight off the film or anything. <laughs> I was a bit like, oh, she's, you know, this is, I forgot that happened. <laughs> well, no, let me put it this way. If, uh, well, number one, my notes and record keeping wouldn't be nearly as uh, detailed. <laughs> <laughs> and and actually, in reality, at least for many people that I know, particularly in private practice, uh, we're actually, you know, we, we tend to keep enough notes that we can keep track of what's going on and we can recall what we need to. But we actually do keep it sparse for that reason, because if something happens to you or if there's an investigation, you know, you, you, you jot down the very important things, but you don't necessarily... Uh, I always think it's funny in fiction, you either have like audio tapes of every session, which by the way, you know, how many, how many storage rooms do they have for audio tapes in that office? Because (laughs) these things stack up, you know, you got to work just like everybody else. We're working somewhere between uh, 25 and 40 hours a week, right? (laughs) So as far as direct client contact, depending on if you're part-time or full-time, you know, and and there's pages and pages of notes a lot of times, uh, whereas 
we, we, we keep that a little, little short because it isn't, uh, it is something that can be compromised. But I'll tell you, if I was uh, murdered or missing, you know, they can, they can kind of look for me. And that's okay. Uh, <laughs> I wasn't turned off by that. I actually thought that was an interesting device. Um, and, and it goes kind of towards his character. Part of this is the way he played it, and part of it is the writing. Uh, but but he he meets one of my criteria for an interesting character, which is that he's very consistent. And you can tell when a character is consistent when they do things that turn your stomach, but are consistent with their personality. Like yes, we we all kind of probably watching are like, well, no, you shouldn't listen to your wife's therapy sessions without her knowledge. That's a real dick move. But it's a kind of dick move that this guy would do. Yeah, exactly. And I think that it's the interesting aspect as well is that, you know, he is very much a atypical Australian male in a way. And he he sees himself as quite, you know, he, he sees himself as a flawless character, as a flawless being. And, you know, it's very judgmental, especially when, uh, you know, he's got Jeffrey Rush's John and the reaction that he has as to, well, where were you? Why weren't you at home? <laughs> Why do you think she turned off the freeway, John? Some people say it's shorter. Who's Patrick? I don't know. She mentioned she was having some sort of trouble with a client the other night. What kind of trouble? She didn't go into it. She doesn't usually talk about her clients. Why not? It's unprofessional. Or even between a husband and a wife? Yes. I tell my wife everything. That surprises me. Why? Most men hold something back. You're some kind of academic, aren't you? I'm Dean of Law. I studied at Harvard. That's where Valerie and I met. I just don't understand why she'd get into a car with a stranger. Well, maybe she didn't. Maybe she knew him. How's your marriage been lately, John? It's fine. How's yours? Up and down. Where were you Friday night? Am I a suspect of my wife's disappearance? Where were you Friday night, John? I was at work. Can anybody verify that? No, I was alone. Nobody saw me. 9 times out of 10 when the wife goes missing. The husband knows something about it. You're a prick. And of course, he is himself the that terrible person that doesn't hold that up to his own his own, I guess, agenda in a way. Yeah. So he is very faithful. The, the actions that he partakes in are very faithful as to the character of him. There's nothing out of character for him. Um, so he is an interesting character. How how about the the women of the piece as well? How do you feel that they they work within the story, the grand story? Well, and. Uh, I think I think they I think they work very well. I think it's well acted, well portrayed. I get the one thing that occurred to me towards the end of the movie um, that that I guess you could call you could call a flaw or a, or a possible criticism. Uh, I guess, although maybe it was on purpose, was that uh, they sure didn't weren't treated well by the men in the movie. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, you know, I I don't know. I I did get a a little bit of a feel. 
that uh, a lot of them sort of lacked a little bit of power and agency. Mm-hmm. You know, sure. I mean, you saw Leon's uh, wife, uh, Sonia. You know, she she yeah. was kind of uh, empowered in a way. You know, and that she, but but not necessarily in a, in a super healthy way. And you know, she act she kind of like acted against his perceived infidelities with 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 her own motions in that direction although she didn't completely go that way um and and was strong enough to stand up to him when he tries he initially tries to reconcile like a bully would reconcile when he tells her what happened to her which again goes back to character consistency he tries to reconcile by saying i had an affair i fucked up but everybody does let's just get over it <laughs> or let's yes. just get through it <laughs> not he not get over it he doesn't doesn't tell her that but he Physically doesn't want to let her leave the room once, and so her character does stand up to him, but that is her own, only agency, and that's one thing I could mention as a little minor critique, I think, is that the women, while they're not weak, they could be a little less dependent on the men in the movie, I think. Mm-hmm. Yes, yeah, and it's, it is interesting in the way that I, I look at it is that, you know, the certainly uh, with uh, Vince Colosimo's character who... He is the man who essentially finds, you know, Barbara Hershey's Valerie in in the middle of nowhere. Uh, Nick uh, is his name, sorry, and he essentially is the the, the stay at home husband uh, while his his partner goes off to to go and earn the money. And I think that is an interesting uh, flip of the the social reality in a way of usually. The perceived notion is that the man goes out and earns the money and that the woman stays at home and cares for the kids. And due to his lack of job situation, he's the guy that stays at home. And I think that that is an interesting flip of, of the table in a way. I guess it goes back to the what you're saying about how the women don't really have much agency in the sense because they are fighting against one another. Her, you know, her fear of the, the single divorced neighbour next door that could steal away her husband at the at a you know drop of the hat seatbelts on quickly hey nick got in late last night didn't he and you got anything better to do than spy on your neighbors what yeah. oh. jane you know just don't invite nick in for coffee when i'm not here I think it goes back to what you're saying about fear. So you you feel that this is a film that that deals with fear in a in an interesting way. What what other elements do you think that that how that is explored within Lantana? Yeah. Well, you see, everybody, every character is uh, is afraid of something, uh, as you put it. Even even just the neighbors who, well. One of them ends up, Nick, of course, ends up playing a much more central role where he's the last one mm. to, to have seen her alive and is thought to be, even thought to be her killer at that point. But yeah, so, so they were all instilled with fear to the point where I thought, well, that had to be a choice. I mean, you can see where uh, Barbara Hershey's character, the, the psychiatrist, you know, she's fearing, uh, ultimately fear is what kills her, if you think about mm-hmm. it, because she hurls herself from a moving car rather than ask a question, uh, which yeah. <laughs> which would be creepy. You're in a car with a stranger, and they turn down some weird road, but instead of being like, where the hell are we going? It's like, no, nah! you know, 
Yes, it's, I'm out of here. That's my Foley work for jumping out of a car, by the way. Uh, <laughs> but do you think even if she had asked that she would want to stay in that situation? <laughs> right. Like, I mean, if you put her, if, if you put yourself in that situation and, and your question was, well, where are we going? And his response is naturally going to be, well, I'm taking it oh, home. A shortcut. Woman. You know, <laughs> this, yeah, this shortcut. Like, I don't know yeah. if I believe him, but yeah. Right. No, and that that goes right to that fear, and and obviously she has a fear of her marriage disintegrating, which is a pretty common fear in this, in in this uh, reality that we're watching, um, with with everybody it seems, uh, and and a fear that I think all of us can relate to. Those of us you know that have that are in long any kind of long term monogamous relationship, you're familiar with that that fear in general, of of oh are we drifting apart. You know, she's in some ways less worried about divorce and more just worried about quality of, of life deterioration in her marriage. And and then there's this other sort of like co-occurring with that. There's this challenge where she's afraid of her patient, Patrick, uh, mm. who, who's a gay man that's involved with, with a, another man who's in a marriage. At the same time, she's worried about the fidelity of her partner and projecting. And it, and it seems like she's afraid of that as well. Um, so you see, you know, that... that character who ultimately becomes the the center of the mystery is a lot about that you've got mm. uh you know obviously leon and sonia are reacting to this uh ultimately they they both seem to have this fear that they're drifting apart from the other one sure and yeah i think so yeah and and you know the her sonia's desire to go and do dancing and stuff like that and leon's reaction to going and doing dancing i think there's a wonderful scene as well like mm-hmm. oh, why would i want to do this and and especially his reaction to finding the the woman that he's having you know an affair with is is dancing with sonia his wife and that's you know it could be it could be perceived as being on the nose that scene because you're like ah oh, see yeah. <laughs> but i think it works quite well um in a way i you know it's i agree I think it's a, there's yeah, yeah, there's obviously his fear, and I think that goes like to Leon's biggest fear, really, uh, which is weakness. You know, I mean mm-hmm. that that whole secret that he's keeping, the whole the whole secret affair feature. That's, I mean, that's a big that's a big part of where he's afraid of being weak. Maybe he's afraid of his own mortality. You could say they not so subtly uh, indicate that he's getting older <laughs> when he's <laughs> jogging and almost has a heart attack. Uh, you know, or or he has this this obviously he's got some kind of heart issues or something he's reacting to, yeah. um, whatever it is. And I think you could make a case. This is the therapist in me. You know, he might be <laughs> having anxiety attacks or he might be having actual heart tr- troubles. We don't really know. Um, and and they they contrast that really well actually because it, it's uh, you even see that in the way that he reacts to the man whose face he shatters when he <laughs> rounds a corner while he's jogging and they run into each other. Yeah, he, he berates this guy. The guy breaks down, and when he's telling the story later, he's like, "Yeah, I was like, oh my gosh, this guy's so weak." And yeah. here I am comforting him and hugging him, and it's like, but you can tell there's a that that really bothers him. He comes home upset, very visibly shaken, emotionally shaken, and then in the end, uh, of course, they they contrast that with when he hears the tape of his wife and she still loves him he breaks down himself into tears. And mm. it's not until then that he's actually able to go to her and have a much more human reaction to his confession. You know, 
uh, and say, I, I don't want to lose you. I'm afraid of losing you. And we're at least led to believe that that, that vulnerability might have actually helped to improve the chances of their marriage. It doesn't spell it out for us at the end. Yeah. I mean, the yeah, where you're left is obviously they're dancing on the screen and stuff like that. And you, you do feel that he's moving in her motions uh, in, in a certain way, moving in, in her rhythm, mm-hmm. which I think, I, you know, it's a, it's a cautiously hopeful ending in my opinion. I, I see it as being, a, you know, reestablishing the foundations of, of a marriage in a way. Yeah. Um, in regards to the way that Leon reacted to the man that he, he ran into, I, which I think is a, a fantastic scene. Yeah. And, you know, even after multiple viewings, I still, like, you know that it's coming. Well, I know that it's coming, but it hits you and it's like, Jesus, you know, yeah. just as you'd expect, like, running into a man in the street would, ha- would occur. Um, but what do you think that, how do you think that the film deals with the idea of, like, of men not being able to really discuss their emotions or really able to discuss how they feel within a marriage or how they feel within a relationship. Do you think that that does a good job of exploring that, that theme in a way? Yeah, actually that, that, that's one of the things where it, it may have been a choice or it may have just been oh, a natural consequence of that. Cause I felt like that, that was a big thrust of the story. Mm-hmm. And and you can probably speak more to the cultural relevance. Uh, I mean, I think it has cultural relevance in the United States as far as that goes, because I think uh, you know that that is the perception and the persona, the the masculinity that that men are supposed to portray of this toughness all the time. I, mm. I thought they showed it a couple of different ways that were really interesting. One of them is that great scene you just mentioned with the jogging, running into each other. There's blood. You know, because yeah. the, the guy's nose is all messed up and, and he's crying on uh, Leon's shoulder. And that's like a form of intimacy that you can tell he's not really comfortable with. But yet, there's no good reason not to be comfortable with that. This is yeah. this jarring experience that just happened. Um, and, or then they contrast that, they show that where he's uh, sitting and drinking with Jeffrey Rush. Mm. At one point. But they're sitting on a... Uh, on the balcony, yeah. So they're sitting on the balcony, uh, I think, just, just taking shots of whiskey and talking about uh, about relationship and marriage. And, and then you contrast it again with the, is it Leon? I can't, no, Leon's the cop. <laughs> no, Michael, I think, is his name. The the husband of I, the woman that Leon is sleeping with. <laughs> yes. <laughs> he, yeah. he doesn't know that, but they they meet in, in a bar and they have this, like, yeah, having a pitch, drink together. Yeah. yeah. And, and it's interesting. Oh yeah, that was Pete. There we go. Michael was yeah. the guy whose nose he shattered. I think. <laughs> yes, too many men. <laughs> so there's one complaint about Lantana. There's too many. Too men. many men. Have all just been called Leon. <laughs> they they go in Leon the professional, but I think that was taken. So they uh, yes. <laughs> little, so they have this like bathroom talk where they're talking, and he tells him the story. It's a, it's very interesting to me because right when he gets home from the nose breaking incident. Uh, his wife is like, what happened? What happened? And he's like, nothing. Just shut up. I don't know. I'm not talking about it. And then as soon as he's in this situation where he's got a few drinks with this guy who he doesn't even really know, he's telling him, this happened. I feel really weird about it. I'm running down this hill and I go down this corner and suddenly there's this guy and bam, right into it. And right away I'm going after him. I'm yelling at him. 
Oh, you fucking prick, you stupid moron. Why don't you look where you're going? It was your fault. Yeah. Oh, yeah, I don't know why I went at him. Just like, some kind of button got pushed or something. Anyway, so, you know, I looked down, and there he is, on the ground, cowering. Mm. You know, he's got blood on his face, and I've broken his fucking nose. Oh, no. Yeah. And then he gets up, and he starts to walk away. And that's when it happens. What? He starts to cry. What for? I don't know. I don't know what makes a man cry like that. Yeah, yeah, a lot of things. So what did you do? I just, well, I held him. I just stood there and I and I held him. But you know, the whole time I was thinking, oh, you fucking weak prick, pull yourself together. You know, the rest of us have to. But don't you want to cry sometimes? Well, yeah, but you don't know, do you? Mm. Which you think, ideally, that's a great thing you could tell your wife and say, hey, can you help me unpack this? Uh, that was a weird experience that I don't know how to take. Yeah, you think that, you would think that, you know, the ability to be open to your, your partner or the person you are in love with should be part and parcel of being married or being in a relationship. Um, but, of course, you know, as we see here, he is more comfortable with talking to a complete stranger. And I think going back to what you're saying as well, the, you know, this is based on uh, Andrew Bovell's uh, stage play, which is called Speaking in Tongues. And it is a really interesting stage play to read. And, you know, it is it's quite faithful that he translated it to screen here and he's quite faithful with doing that. Um, but I think that, you know, the, the stage title, Speaking in Tongues, speaks to the masculine aspect of not being able to, you know, and I'm doing it right now, not being able to explain yourself very well and not being able to be very clear with what you're trying to talk about. Um, and I think the another scene which I think is quite interesting too is when his son, uh, you know, when I think it's Leon asks for the kiss from his son as he's going to school and he says, well, you're going to give your dad a kiss. And, you know, obviously his son is a bit like, oh, you know, am I not old enough to be past this now? Like, uh-huh. at what point do I can I be away from having to give my dad a kiss? And I think that it's an interesting exploration of that. So, and it is. Yeah, interesting. I'm glad that you saw that as well. Oh yeah, and I, one thing I noticed that, that was interesting, uh, they didn't overplay this, but uh, both times that he was comfortable being vulnerable with another man involved alcohol. If you think yes. about it. <laughs> It's, and and uh, whether it's, it's not always substance use that does this, but I have noticed that if you get men together, like if you get men together, because I've actually literally done this, if you have a group of people together and you say, let's talk about our feelings, gentlemen, you know, and it's an all men's psychotherapy group, uh, you know, it's a little hard to get the ball rolling. You got to come up with some stuff, some conversation starters. You got to be ready because a lot of, there's a lot of looking at their shoes for a minute. But if you are able to get something to do, like you put a campfire in the middle of all those guys, uh, or in some cases an engine block or perhaps a sports game or or whatever, uh, all of a sudden they do want to talk. Because as men, we really are quite emotional. We're just taught Mm. not to show it. And, And so we don't know. We don't talk about it even in our own mind sometimes. We don't talk about it to other people. And so that vulnerability starts to creep out, though, when we have a project. And some, so in this case, it's having a drink, but that's an interesting and maybe not so healthy thing that we kind of have as part of our masculine. We're sitting down and getting drunk together. Then I can talk. Uh, and yes. that's what it takes. <laughs> yeah. And I know in Australia, at least we do have an alcohol problem in a way. And that is very much, 
No, it is an issue that we are trying to deal with right now. And of course, this is a film from 2001. But at the moment, we're trying to instigate a way to break the cycle from, uh, you know, the child going to get the beer from the fridge for the dad and stuff like that and try and break that, that alcohol cycle. Do you find... I mean, this is going off topic a little bit, but do you find that that's something that is a, a big issue in America as well? Is alcohol as such a huge issue? No, nah, we don't really have any substance problems here in America. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that's a, I mean, it's an obvious no. question. Yeah. <laughs> answer, but yeah. No, no, it, it's, it's uh, no, obviously we, we do have quite a bit of a problem and, and you actually see a lot of uh, what I would call self-medication uh, mm-hmm. with, with that, as well as a lot of social things that are tied up with that. Um, and, and I think a lot of these things th- that uh, when I say self-medication, it's basically when we start to use something as a way to deal with other problems, you know, um, w- whether it's, um, you know, drinking to not have to feel, not have to think, or in Leon's case, uh, I'm maybe doing it because I can't feel. He he references what, which I thought was another strength, by the way, it kind of touches on what we're saying right now when he's trying to explain to his wife why he had this affair when he still loves her and they have a basically pretty solid life there. They have mm. a, a nice home. They have a nice family. And she's like, why would you do this? And he's like, well, I, don't know, I just I just don't feel anything. I feel nothing. I'm numb. And, and that's the kind of thing people actually say after making that kind of decision a lot of times. I just I couldn't feel anything. It didn't matter. Nothing mattered. And so anything that made me feel something is better than nothing. And I think that yes. goes to the drinking as well as to the, the infidelity in this movie. And I think that it's also, and uh, if, if you could boil this film down to one particular line of dialogue, I think that um, Jeffrey Rush's John's line of dialogue, which is what holds your marriage together, is certainly a very potent line of dialogue because it does talk about, you know, it does talk about the, the emptiness as well as it talks about, just getting on with it and going, well, we've got two kids and going through the motions in a way. And I think that it's an interesting thing, especially as you're saying, you know, he's, he's empty. He's got, there's nothing there and trying to find something to fill his void in a way. Um, The other thing which I find quite interesting, and I'm curious about your thoughts on it as well, is that the, if there is one person who is voluntarily open with their emotions it is the the character of Patrick, the the gay patient, and I do wonder about that. That is something for me, at least. It doesn't. It does feel a bit like gay panic in a way, um, but only because you know Valerie's uh, concerned that it might be him that is is possibly having the affair with uh, her husband. Uh, how, what did you think of, of him as a character and, and what he represented within the story? Well, I, I actually uh, I, I felt like he did exactly what uh, he was there to do as far as a character, uh, is that he was challenging. Um, he was challenging to her personally, which is why, you know, obviously the the plot device of that character was for her to start. She seems to start wondering if her husband is actually the person that he's talking about, which when you're seeing that from her perspective, that this seems, because there's no way he wouldn't know that if that was the case. Mm. Uh, and when he's saying things like, here's what he says about his wife, mm, you get the idea like, <laughs> that, that would, if that was like literally true, he's cuckolding you right in front of you and like, like yeah. rubbing it in your face on purpose. That would that that 
you kind of wonder, is there going to be a super devious bent to this guy? Um, but then I, I, I don't know that I ever really believed it was, it was Jeffrey Rush who, who he was having the affair with. Um, I didn't I, I knew I was supposed to think that and I thought maybe, but it just seems a little, a little tightly wound together. And, and so anyway, I, I think though that, uh, that's the type of character that actually might be a good portrayal, particularly for that time of, of how uncomfortable a lot of heterosexual people are with homosexual relationships. And aside from the sexuality and the orientation, uh, just the non-traditional arrangement of what's happening. Uh, mm. Of like, yeah, I'm, I'm having this essentially affair with a married man, but I feel like I'm his primary relationship in a lot of ways, and I feel like I'm here and I help him and I love him. And I don't, it's not going to end well, obviously, but what's going to happen and I have sincere hopes for this relationship and unabashedly, unashamedly saying that mm. when she tells him, Oh, you feel guilty. He's like, should I, I don't really feel guilty. You're she's projecting quite a bit onto him of how she wishes he felt. <laughs> I keep thinking about her. Are you feeling guilty? Do you think I should be? It doesn't matter what I think. He feels m- manipulated by her. Oh, she's very needy. Are you trying to justify his deceit? No, I'm trying to understand it, that's all. It's, it's complex. Mm-hmm. But it's still an act of deceit, isn't it? No marriage can be based on that. <laughs> most marriages are based on that, Valerie. Do you think you know what goes on in most marriages? What? Because I'm gay, I, I can't have an opinion on the state of contemporary right, marriage. Not what I was trying She's to say. not the victim in this, Valerie. She chose to marry him. Not knowing he was gay. But there's knowing and there's knowing. What do you mean? I think some women like to live the lie. It's easier than dealing with the truth. Maybe she loves him. So do I. Then he has to make a choice. Unless one of us withdraws from the contest. Is love a contest for you, Patrick? Patrick. Yes. Sometimes. Which I did think was a bit, I mean, obviously I'm not in that situation, but I did think that that was a bit strange for her to be saying, you know, that kind of thing. I, my understanding of being in her situation is supposed to provide leading questions, not, you know, going, well, did you feel guilty? Did you? <laughs> yeah, I, I felt it was a little judgy. And if they were going for a, uh, what we would call that counter-transference, uh, usually sure. in my industry. Transference is when a, a patient has a strong emotional reaction that interferes with therapy. And countertransference is when the therapist has it. And so in her shoes, you know, she's experiencing some pretty strong countertransference where, you know, she ten- it seems like she interprets it as, I'm afraid that my husband is literally sleeping with this man. Um, that's where it goes. But to me, I, I think it's... Uh, it's really activating a deeper fear she has that my marriage is falling apart and I'm, I am that wife. Even if I'm not literally that wife, you know, I, I am that wife in our situation, even if they're, as it turns out, not, there's not another partner, not another affair. He's just pulling away because they're not connected anymore, which in a way mm. is even scarier. Yes. You know, there's a reason when <laughs> a lot of, so. when a lot of people will tell their, their spouse, I want to separate, I want a divorce. 
uh, one of the first things people think is, well, they must be involved with someone else. And in a weird way, even though that's very torturing, it can be a comfort because mm-hmm. it it makes sense. And it's because then you can dismiss them as some something monstrous. You can say, oh, that bastard cheated on me or that whatever uh, or that. You know, you can alternate it for bitch if you want. If you, I mean, I'm not saying like one <laughs> one gender necessarily, but people will almost take this kind of weird, twisted comfort in like, oh well, at least they were they were weak, they were immoral, they were something's wrong with them. Instead of just like, well, they don't love me anymore, which even in a lot of infidelity cases is kind of there's an underlying problem with the affection. But yes, to that point, I did find a lot of her questions to be a little strange for a therapist. Yeah. Uh, you know, uh, that, that, yeah, it seemed like she had a certain, certain agenda <laughs> coming and, into therapy. <laughs> <laughs> but I did also wonder as well, because of course, I think in a way, uh, she'd lost a daughter, I think it was a year beforehand or so. And, and very quickly, it seems, wrote a book about it, um, you know, and got it out there and was on the, the press tour. <laughs> yeah. Like, that's actually pretty impressive woman. just to, just to hammer a book together in a year and a half and get that out there, uh. <laughs> Yeah. Who'd she get in touch with? Stephen King or something like that? I don't know. I mean, <laughs> well, she was, was already just... maybe she was already had a draft written uh, just in case That's her it. daughter was murdered. Well, yeah, I mean, she's probably got a drawer full of him. She was murdered. She was raped. Or she just went missing. Or she got married. <laughs> my, you know, the problem the was, see, one. she's in the she was in the draft stages of my husband's having a homosexual affair book, and so she's like, <laughs> oh no, it's coming true. Not that one. <laughs> It's a very specific form of OCD. This would make a great movie in and of itself, by the way. <laughs> yes. Um, but I think maybe possibly because she hasn't fully dealt with the, the loss of her daughter, um, that might come through in her work. I know that, you know, if you personally are having a difficult time at work and, you know, there's, you've done episodes on it before on your show and uh, once again, you know, do strongly recommend listening to your show because it touches on fantastic topics like this. Um, but if you are having a difficult personal life or difficult time with grieving or something like that, then that does carry across into your work. And I'm sure that it's very difficult if your job is to sit there and listen to other people's problems to not transfer your issues or your personal life onto them in a certain way. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, it's, it's a difficult role in a sense. Um, I think that that's, that is the, the epitome of what this film is. is it, it is full of difficult people and difficult characters. There's nobody who feels right and there's nobody who feels wrong. Even though Leon in a certain way does err uh, more on the side of wrong, I personally feel that he, you still can sympathize with him in certain ways, especially when he does break down in the car by doing something that is exceptionally wrong, which is listening to his wife's therapy tape, you know, like that is, that is very wrong. It's not not that he might have slept with another woman. It's that he might not tell me. That would be the betrayal. Do you still love him? Yeah. 
Do you think that if he hadn't listened to it that he wouldn't have been able to step forward and move forward in his relationship? Do you think that that wouldn't have been possible? Yeah, no, uh, probably not. Uh and and of course when you're when you're writing and directing a movie you can you can kind of play with that and say here's someone doing the wrong thing for what ends up being the right reason. Uh and and, and but more than maybe you could in real life or it'd be hard it, it's just harder to see it in real life. But I think that does happen. And, and the way those things work I, and to that point i think the film itself was not judgmental there's a lot of judgment people throw at each other um like take uh oh take the barbara hershey's character and jeffrey rush's in their marriage i think if you asked the doctor the the, the dr summers valerie yeah 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 valerie uh barbara hershey's character She'd say, I'm dealing with the death of our daughter and my husband is not dealing with it or not dealing with it well. Um, mm-hmm. I think she would judge him that way. But, of course, he slings that back at her at one point when she, go, for comfort, goes to a bookstore and looks at all the copies of her, which is a phenomenally successful book for being about the murder of a, a daughter. You know, there's a bookstore just everywhere that has it all over the place. And, and you know, she's looking at her own book cover for comfort and he he make, takes a jab at that and... He's like, of course I'm grieving. I just didn't have to write a book about it. And so yeah. the, the, so even though there might be that judgment there of that disagreement, the film, I think, doesn't judge between writing a book about your daughter's death or going to the alley where she was found and leaving flowers every day, like he does. Mm. Um, even though he has some shame around that and he doesn't tell her, he never says it's because she wouldn't approve, but you could, I mean, you could see that conversation yeah. playing out with this couple. Uh, but the film doesn't seem to judge him for it. And and just the same thing, we we kind of judge Leon a bit that this is wrong, what he's doing, but we also feel sorry for him because we realize he's self-medicating. He's he's treating his fear with an unhealthy coping skill. Yes, <laughs> very much so. So in, in that regard, do you have a favorite scene or do you have a favorite performance within this film that sticks out to you as being... Yeah, essentially your favorite part of of this film. I you know one of the, let's say overall first, and then I'll mention a scene. But yeah, but overall, I felt like uh, the whole the whole thing was very compelling, and it was compelling in a way that we're seeing less and less of nowadays. At least coming <laughs> coming from my nation, which oftentimes <laughs> is leading the charge on a lot of movies that are made. Um, we're going in more and more in a direction where if it's not a huge blockbuster with someone blowing something up with superpowers. We're not making it anymore. We're not funding it. You got to do an Indiegogo or something. It's your own problem to try to get that made. Um, and this is a film where, albeit it was 2001, but it's nice to see that someone's making something that is character driven and, and just story driven. Um, that I could see this being a stage play. So I'm not surprised to see mm. that it's based on one. Uh, yeah. So, so you have you have those uh, moments. You you mentioned a scene that I really enjoyed, which was the one where he runs into the guy. And that little yeah. interaction that they have, um, so I won't, I won't, I won't go for that one because I think we've already talked about it quite a bit. Yeah. But I, I also, uh, I like the scene where he and Jeffrey Rush are in the car, and there's the big reveal there 
that Jeffrey Rush wasn't really late at work at a meeting, innocently doing whatever. He was making a sandwich, or whatever he was making, and listening to the messages on the answering machine in live time and rolling his eyes. Basically. Yeah. Like, oh, gosh, here we go. Now she thinks I'm having an affair with some dude. Okay, here we go. Um, and that line that he says, even though this is a very, very torturous kind of scene, and, and the line that he says to the detective when he says, I just thought she would come home. I think that sums up that type of pain and regret very well. Where it's mm. like, I just expected we'd just keep fighting. And then all of a sudden, I don't have that opportunity anymore. Yeah, and it's a, I guess in a way, it's a, the, you know, the inability to address what is right in front of you. And, you know, she is in the middle of nowhere and she needs a lift home. And the inability to go, all right, well, I'll go and pick her up. And addressing that problem, it's, I guess in a way, you know, cutting off your nose to spite your face and just be like, well, fuck her because, you know, we're in the middle of this long argument and she'll get her own way home, that kind of thing. And, and yeah, her, his realisation in that scene is really, really powerful, I mm-hmm. think. And, yeah. again, I guess the, the film doesn't judge him in a way. It doesn't judge him for not picking up the phone. It feels like a very real moment, to me at least. Yeah. I, I wouldn't say that that's something that I personally would do, but I'm also, I've never been in that situation. And that's the thing I think that Lantana does well is that it presents people in situations that you yourself would go, well, I wouldn't do that, but you've never been in that situation. Well, hopefully most people have never been in those situations, so you wouldn't ever know and you would never be able to judge yourself for it. Yeah. Well, and that's the thing. That's, I think, where uh, filmmaking and storytelling at its best is going to take us to a place where it's like, well, I don't have to be that guy who doesn't answer the phone and my wife gets killed uh, or be a guy who's this philandering whatever. Uh, or, you know, I don't have to be that to have a little bit of experience feeling like, oh, wow. But I have felt afraid to engage when my wife was angry at me before. <laughs> I have felt like, oh... <laughs> We haven't had this conversation. I don't know if it's going to go well, you know. And I, I think when you look at that, that's where uh, John, Jeffrey Rush's character, is really a victim to his own fear in that moment, where he's afraid to engage. And, you know, it's really interesting to me, too, where um, the things that seem to get to actually fix situations are, are the rare times in this film where um, people are willing to be vulnerable and be intimate, m- moving towards intimacy it actually helps with fear, even though it's one of the most scary things of all, like, like we see in the end. And if we are to go with the tone of the film that Leon and Sonya are going to probably reconcile and be able to save their marriage because they're being open and vulnerable to each other. They're pulling mm. towards each other instead of away and giving into that fear and going with a more safe, uh, as she puts it, you know, she has that line, which I think, well, it wasn't my favorite line in the movie, but where she says, it's easy to go out and find someone, what's hard is not to. And, you know, I don't, I, that's, that's a very, to me, that's a little kind of an engineered line, but, but on the other hand, what, what she's saying there is it's, it's harder to pull together than it is to pull apart when you're having yeah. a hard time. Yeah, it is. Which as you said, it is very, en- yeah, <laughs> it is an engineered line in the sense that, you know, I'm sure that Andrew Bubble sat there and went, fuck, that's a really good line. That's, <laughs> <laughs> that's really good. <laughs> but, um, 
you know, it does it does feel unnatural in a certain way. But I think Carrie Armstrong delivers it in a really impressive manner. Sure. And I don't um, think any of us would have any trouble thinking Carrie Armstrong would not have any trouble finding someone. <laughs> yes. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And, you know, it's quite interesting. Um, you know, you might be curious to know that before doing this role, she played this. She was on this TV show called Sea Change, which is a great show. Uh, David Wenham was on it as a character called Diver Dan. But Carrie Armstrong's character within that show was this ditzy, blonde kind of person. So this is a very much about-face performance from her. You didn't expect this. Uh, well, in Australia, at least, we were like, wow, this is not who we expected in this role. Um, and I think she did quite a good job. She's a good actress. Yeah. Oh, I think she, I think she did very well. In fact, I'd, I'd say uh, one of the great strengths of this film is it's very well cast. Mm-hmm. You know, even, um, I don't know, there, there's little things like, uh, what's her name? Leah Purcell, who plays uh, Leon's partner. Oh, yeah. Uh, Claudia. Yeah. Uh, for for one thing, the way that uh, she was cast and even the way that she, maybe it was costumed, maybe it was just the whatever, um, she looks like she could be a cop. And that's always a measure of mine, too. Like, um, cops, at least at least this is a thing in the United States. Um, you go back and rewatch NYPD Blue and look at and tell me <laughs> if any of the officers outside of maybe uh, Detective Sipowitz look like they could actually be a, a police officer. <laughs> They've got bodybuilders and models, you know, running around yeah. in, in the NYPD and that and whatever. And so I, I, I like <laughs> when they cast people and you're like, okay, that's believable. And even uh, even her her. And by the way, I'm I'm correct in this, aren't I? The the guy that she was hoping to meet at the restaurant is the guy who got face shattered by Leon. Yes. Yeah. yeah. That's what I thought. Because yeah. apparently there's only there's only like ten people in this this town. Yeah. Well, it is Sydney, you know. <laughs> <laughs> I was there last week. I can vouch. There is they've increased. There's about twenty there now. So you know, <laughs> really good. Well, this it has been like you know fifteen years. So exactly, appropriate. But yeah, very well cast. I think they got great people, and they all did exactly what they should have done. And, and it, usually, you watch something like this, and there's one or two that you're like, "Ugh, what is that person doing there?" And they're dragging it down. But I didn't feel that way about anybody. Well, it's good. I'm I'm glad. I'm glad. I'm you know starting off this series. I was I'm I was trying to match up the people who might be interested in the film or might enjoy the film so it pleases me to hear that you actually you know you you appreciated it (laughs) i just thinking that would be that would be an intimidating start to a podcast project if your first like several are like nope nope next (laughs) this was shit (laughs) (laughs) let's start with my favorite nope (laughs) (laughs) this is your favorite how dare you why do they all have the all talk funny no, that's the American <laughs> response that maybe you're. <laughs> you're, you're gonna... <laughs> so, Lantana, is this a film that you would recommend to to somebody? Are you glad that you've seen it now? And and also, what you know, giving you a load of question, three questions in one. Yes. Uh, you know, is this a? Do you think that this is a great example of Australian cinema? <laughs> okay, so <laughs> let me take Come the on. last part of that first. Just- <laughs> um, I, I would, you know what? I'll say this, uh, which the, I'll answer the last part of your question first, which is, is it a good example of Australian cinema? And I can only say, I would hope that it is, uh, because it was good. And I hope Australian cinema is good because I just have not been exposed to it. I'm actually looking forward to listening to, to other episodes of your program so I can, I can learn about more of these. Uh, so I would recommend it. 
the one, uh, probably the one qualifier that I would have is there are people who I might hesitate to recommend it because it is, and, and this is one of the things I like about it, but I always have to be a little cautious when I recommend things because I like things that are thought-provoking and emotional, emotionally provoking. And this does trigger feelings and it does challenge the way you look at things and um, it makes you uncomfortable at times, but it makes me want to keep watching. Mm-hmm. If that makes sense. Uh, yes. Yeah. So, so that's, that's the, the only qualifier I'd put is that uh, people, that I do know people and, and they kind of have a, a, a goal of more popcorny movies maybe, I guess, for yeah. lack of a better term. Um, but I think it's a good and powerful look and I think it, it shakes you. You know, one example of that, and this might be a weird example, but, uh, the sex scenes in the movie, um, which, which by the way, and I don't even remember, I don't know what this was rated or whatever. It's probably R, but that's probably mostly because of language. I thought that the, you could tell sex was going on. Um, they weren't, but, but they, I, I can only assume this was done purposefully. They weren't very erotic. Uh, I didn't think as far as from a viewer's perspective, they yes. were more like real sex probably looks if it's like, uh, how can I say it? Cause it wasn't like real, like it wasn't porno. It wasn't anything that was super revealing or anything to anybody. So I don't want to give that image of the movie, but it was realistic in the sense that I felt a little awkward being in the room with it. Like, Oh, that's probably what it, you know, it's, it's not something you'd want to watch. You do. You wouldn't want to watch most people, actually engage in sex because it would be like, oh, that's not really like, there's no camera, it's not flattering, it's just these two people are trying to express themselves somehow. Yeah, it's not titillating. It's not, you know, wow, wow, that scene, you know, wow, that's, I had to, whew, right around the collar. Um, (laughs) You know, in in Australia it's rated M, which is like our mature rating, and it's, I've got the DVD in front of me and it says, Adult themes, low-level coarse language, and low-level sex scenes. Um, you know, and so yeah, that's a good way to say it. Hey, there you go. There's a low level of them. I don't know how they quantify these things. You know, do they? I, yeah, <laughs> it kind of makes me think of they've got a jug or something like that, and they pour. Ah, it's just a lo- little bit of little bit of sex in there. <laughs> just a touch. It's like um, a hillbilly moonshine jug with only one X on it. That's it. Exactly. Exactly. But, you know, to go into that nature as well, you know, the, the first sex scene within the film, she's um, hitting her head on the, the board and all this kind of stuff. And it is very, it does feel natural in a way and it does feel awkward. And as you're saying, you know, you kind of feel like, shit, what am I doing in here? Yeah. And I do love the, the sort of the reveal of the lost earring as well. I love that. Oh, oh it's in my pubes. Okay, well... <laughs> <laughs> don't know what it's doing there, but hey, whatever. <laughs> well, so, there's yeah, an I've... awkwardness and an intimacy that uh, they address, I think, to where it's like, it, and what, speaking of things that are challenging, having to have like a little, oh, I lost my earring. My husband gave them to me. That we're right away introduced to that. And it's like, oh, this is clearly not her husband she's with. Mm. And then there's like a, well, see ya. Thanks. You know, thanks for a good, we were, we just had sex and it's kind of, there's a weird kind of awkward feeling of like, we shouldn't really have done that, but we did. And now we have to say goodbye somehow to get out the door. Um, and, and, and I, I, funny enough, I'm sitting there thinking, oh yeah, you would have, that would have to happen. There'd have to be a weird, awkward <laughs> conversation. Huh? I, you know, I wouldn't have thought of that. <laughs> yeah. It's like, okay, sure. No worries. <laughs> I mean, and that's again, the thing is that, you know, going back to, 
I've never been in that situation myself, but I don't know how I personally would react. And, and that's, I imagine that that feels very natural. That is exactly how it would happen in a way. And makes sense. Yeah. Yeah, it does. Yeah. So I'm glad that you liked it and I'm glad that you would recommend it to a certain amount of people. (laughs) It's good. It's good. Um, do you have any sort of uh, final questions before we wrap up? Um, do you have any sort of comparisons to American cinema in a way that you would think that Lantana would match um, certain American films at all? Well, um, you know what? It reminded me of. Do you know? Because if you know, then it might be. <laughs> I have to find the I name of it. <laughs> I oh, have an idea. Oh, why don't idea. you guess while I'm looking up the name of it? Well, the film that to me that it springs to mind is Magnolia. Um, and mostly because, I mean, Lantana came out two years after Magnolia did. And of course, Magnolia is a plant and Lantana is a plant and Magnolia kind of focuses around, you know, 10, 15 people or so. And structurally they are very similar in the sense that they all kind of bump into one another literally in certain ways. Uh, and, so thematically, probably not so much, but structurally, I think that that is probably, in my opinion, the the most compar- close comparison film. Um, I guess, yeah. There, you, there you go. Yes, <laughs> let's that go. One. No, um, oh, I did find it though. While you were saying that, that's a good comparison. <laughs> I hadn't thought of that one. Probably because I haven't seen it, um, but oh, I do no. remember it. <laughs> oh damn! Well, I'm not doing an American <laughs> film podcast, so I can't get you on today. So we can't do that one. We'll have Maybe to I wait. Maybe I'll pay Dave from uh, Pop just, Culture Case oh, Study I'll, another five bucks to do an episode with you on it. <laughs> I'll put it out there in the universe. Someone will invite me to watch it. Um, it. So here's what I thought of was uh, Closer. Oh, yeah. Uh, okay. Yeah, which is a movie with Natalie Portman, Jude Law, Clive Owen, and Julie Roberts, which is how I found I couldn't remember the name of it, so I looked up Clive Owen. Um, I thought, <laughs> he can't have been in that many movies. Uh, turns out I was wrong about that. So... <laughs> No, he uh, and so you got some really powerhouse actors who I actually really enjoy most of those actors in most things that they're in. Um and I would say, you know, it's it's two couples, there's this complicated uh well, you could say, you could say the relationships of two couples become complicated and deceitful when the man from one couple meets the woman of the other. Um uh, if you were typing up IMDb descriptions, <laughs> that's probably what exactly what you would say. Uh no, but here's the difference. I think that close closer in my opinion, and I can't remember if I've sat down and watched the whole thing or just pieced it together on TV. Anyway, uh, though I think it goes more for the titillating, sexy route in some ways, mm. uh, whereas this one uh, does does not really. It's going more for the human emotional kind of kind yes. of a, an outlet. So, uh, so I would say that's a comparison I would make, uh, but I would say that that Lantana is a stronger movie. Yeah. Well, yeah, I mean, Closer is, that, I think from memory, that was my favorite film of that year. So uh, good, good pick. Good pick. Awesome. <laughs> yeah. I got um, the right answer. Yeah, bingo. Yeah, but you really need to watch Magnolia. It's my, it's my personal <laughs> favorite film. So, you know. Of all? Um, of, of all time. Oh, yeah. okay. Maybe I will have yeah. to check it out. Yeah. It's, I, I do really love it. But, you know, I'm not doing a film podcast on on American films that might be uh, something I'll do next year. Uh, so <laughs> <laughs> you haven't started your, your, your weekly podcast about the film Magnolia yet. No, no, but Bernadette does hear about it 
on a regular occasion. <laughs> and her her opinion is usually shut the fuck up. Um, <laughs> so when I said to her a few weeks ago, I was like, do you know, I haven't seen Magnolia in a while. And she's like, please, let's not do that. So oh, wow, that's a three hour film. It's three hours long. Yeah, yeah three three hours and eight minutes. Yeah, aren't you glad I just asked you to do a two-hour film? So, <laughs> <laughs> um, so anyway, on the subject of podcasts, uh, as we wrap up, um, tell us, tell the listeners again where they can find you and and what your show is again. And yeah, you yeah. can uh, you can go to my website. It's just my name, dwighthurst.com dot slash podcast. That's also the website of my private practice. So you'll see if it comes up and looks all mental healthy. That's why. Um, but if you go to dwighthurst.com dot slash podcast, you can view the the broken brain and our archives of all our previous episodes or of course you can get it on itunes or stitcher um the amygdala magazine podcast with its uh co-occurring short story competition is out now it's a cross-genre short story competition that uh involves basically it's a it's a, a theme for the year and it can be western sci-fi contemporary it doesn't matter it can be a blend of those as long as it's clever and matches the theme and our theme this year funny enough is Bad coping skills. Uh, so uh, you can anytime between now and Halloween 2016, in case you're listening to this in the future, um, you can uh, you can submit that. And there's a website for that, which is amygdalazine.com. Amygdala is in the part of your brain that gets you excited. And zine is in magazine, because why not? Because uh, that one was available, that website. So you can also <laughs> follow me on Twitter at Breakabrain if you so choose. And I'll I'll put links all for all of that stuff in the the show notes as well. So please, guys, do check out uh, everything that Dwight touches. Well, not not everything he touches, but you know everything that he produces. I highly recommend it as creepy, a fan. Creepy stalker so, behavior aside, right? That's it. That's it. I that's why I said it at the end of the show and not the beginning. <laughs> so thank you again, and uh, yeah. Thank, Thank you, you for it's being fun. on the first episode. Uh, I hope you enjoyed it. Yeah. Oh, glad to. Looking forward to hearing the others. again for listening to this episode on Lantana and as mentioned please do go and check out Dwight Hurst's work on dwighthurst.com and listen to his show Broken Brain as well as the Amygdala magazine podcast uh, they're both really really great podcasts that I highly recommend listening to as for us Thank you again. I highly appreciate you having listened to this first episode discussing Lantana. If you want to discuss this furthermore, uh, please do hit us up on Twitter or Facebook at The Last New Wave. Alternatively, you can also hit us up at AB Film Review, where myself and Bernadette, who you heard at the beginning of the episode, will discuss other films that may not be Australian films, but you can hit us up there as well. We also have a Facebook group that you can head over to and basically talk about anything that you want film-related that we discuss on these shows as well. So if you want to discuss Lantana at length in there, you can do as well. I'll put links in the show notes. 
As this is the first episode, I would really highly appreciate if you head over to iTunes and leave a rating and a review. Uh, It just helps get the news out that there is a new Australian film podcast out there and gets people interested in hearing more of this particular discussion. So I'd really appreciate if you head over there and do that. That would be a huge help for the show. Now, for the next episode, I'm going to be joined by uh, Hiro from the True Bromance Film Podcast as we discuss Welcome to Whoop Whoop. Now, that's a bit of a difficult film to find, but if you're in Australia, it's pretty easy to find. You can uh, hit up some of the streaming services that it's available to watch there. Alternatively, the DVD is fairly cheap and available at most places. Um, If you're based in America and you want to watch Welcome to Whoop Whoop, then unfortunately your options are a little bit limited. Um, But the disc is usually about five or six Australian dollars, so hit up eBay and it's fairly cheap given the uh, current conversion rate. Uh, So that is the next film that we'll be discussing. Welcome to Whoop Whoop. Again, thanks for listening to this episode. Al cielo una mirada larga Buscando un poco de mi vida Mis estrellas no responden Para alumbrarme hacia tu risa Olas que esfuman de mis ojos A una legión de tus recuerdos Me roban formas de tu Dejando arena en el silencio Te busco perdida entre sueños El ruido de la gente te envuelve en un velo Te busco volando en el cielo El viento te ha llevado como un pañuelo viejo Y no hago más que rebuscar Paisajes conocidos en lugares tan extraños que no puedo dar contigo. En cualquier huella te persigo, en una sombra te dibujo. Huellas y sombras que se pierden la soledad. La suerte no vino conmigo. Te busco perdida entre sueños. El ruido de la gente te envuelven en un velo. Te busco volando en el cielo. El viento te ha llevado como un pañuelo viejo. Paisajes conocidos En lugares tan extraños Que no puedo dar Contigo Te busco volando en el cielo, 
el viento te ha llevado como un pañuelo viejo y no hago más que rebuscar paisajes conocidos en lugares tan extraños que no puedo dar con 